Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Hello everyone and welcome to the brand new series of Hidden Histories, in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the BBC's prestigious New Generation Thinkers Scheme. Since 2010, the New Generation Thinkers Scheme has developed a new generation of 100 academics who can bring the best of university research and scholarly ideas to a broad audience through the media and public engagement. It's a chance for early career researchers to cultivate the skills to communicate their research findings to those outside the academic community. I am thrilled to be able to invite a selection of new generation thinkers to discuss their research on the podcast. The guests on this series of Hidden Histories discuss a multitude of fascinating topics, from famine relief over the last two centuries to the dark side of the Italian Renaissance. There is more information on the New Generation Thinkers Scheme on the Arts and Humanities Research Council webpage, detailing events, programmes and reading material relating to the scheme and the NGT's research. I'll link all of this in the show notes, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special series. Sam Goodman, welcome to Hidden Histories. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So um, we're going to talk about imperial nostalgia and how that particularly manifests in popular culture today. So firstly, what would you define as imperial or colonial nostalgia? And how is this so ingrained in our identity and pop culture? Well, for me, the, the genre of imperial and colonial nostalgia has always existed within colonial publishing cultures. Many of the uh, different waves of Anglo-Indian literatures or cultures of memoir and sort of experiential writing are often um, immediately positioned as looking back from the very beginning. So, I mean, my interest in colonial writing began through a study of the Indian Rebellion of 1857. And this was a, a kind of earth-shattering event for colonial British India. It sort of it is described by some writers within that genre as a, a thunderbolt from a clear blue sky. And the kind of growing unrest that had been sort of yeah, occurring for, for some time appeared to have passed them by. And due to this sort of shock on that community, an enormous culture of memoir writing grew up around it. 
And these memoirs, right from their very beginning, are starting to talk about this sort of almost idyllic pre-rebellion British India that has now been lost. And then that, looking back and that ethos of nostalgia from the very sort of inception, influences the subsequent waves of writing. So you get Kipling, obviously, in the late 19th century. And then after Indian independence in 1947, um, where the bulk of my research has focused, you get this host of British writers, all writing from the 19, late 1950s through to the 1980s, where the Raj revival, as Salman Rushdie called it, really begins to take hold. And these are backwards-looking, often historical novels, sometimes very parodic, such as in the work of J.G. Farrell. Sometimes they're far more serious and high-minded, such as um, the work of Paul Scott. But they're all kind of working around this ethos of, of looking backwards into the British past as a means of trying to make um, sense of the British present and that present of decolonialisation. So Kipling, for example, is practically a household name. And you've mentioned some of the later writers, but do you think that this imperial nostalgia can be, and, and um, decolonisation can be positive and negative, so both for and against imperialism? I think there has been a resurgence of interest in a, a sort of balance sheet approach to the history of imperialism, which, to be honest, I don't find particularly useful or particularly productive as a means of trying to, to read empire. Certainly thinking about different kinds of publication cultures and different writers within these, these genres in terms of their popularity can be very productive, though. So uh, Kipling, as you say, is a a household name and still is partly because of that sort of industry of of nostalgic cultural production that has grown up um, after the end of the empire and that popularity is key to understanding those writers of the 60s and 70s i mentioned so in the first 10 years of the booker prize which itself is a, a literary award that is steeped in the history of empire seven of the first 12 winners of the Booker Prize deal with colonial themes, and many of those are to do with India in particular. So thinking about why that is, why there's a particular confluence of these um, markers of cultural esteem and value, as well as popularity in terms of sales and name recognition and you know the, the business of actually reading these books, Although the, the question of whether that many people read the Booker Prize winner is perhaps for a different conversation is something that, that is particularly interesting and then allows you to ask further questions about what's going on with, with Britishness and national identity in those different periods. A lot of this is tied up in the idea of adventure, I think, and the nostalgia for adventure. Do you see that in this period in the 80s and maybe into the 90s in the Booker Prize and the sort of literature that is being produced at this time? Adventure as, a, as an ideal of the colonial novel is, is absolutely spot on. And I mean, there are definitely examples from this period that try to recreate the kind of unashamedly adventure-related themes and plotting of people like Ryder Haggard, should we say, or, or Kipling. And in particular here, I'm thinking of um, someone like MMK and the Far Pavilions, which is this sort of grand sweeping epic, which was was the, the first HBO Goldcrest adaptation that sort of set the tone for the kind of big HBO special that we might know today. So that was happening in the, the sort of, well, the book was published in the 70s and this happened in the early 1980s. But the other thing that adventure um, and the idea of the adventure genre puts me in the mind of 
is a rather unlikely addition to the Raj revival, which is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I was actually going to mention that because, I mean, that now, re- revisiting that film, which this was something I grew up with, and I'm sure you did too, watching that movie. And you look at it so differently now as how you did then, I think. Yeah, and I, th- I think that uh, that is in part, of course, a result of scholarly training and critical thinking and so on, but also, a, a, I guess, a temporal difference between how this kind of cultural production was was received and marketed and, and to whom it spoke and what kind of audience existed for works of that nature. And like one of the one of the key things I found in my research is that understanding this um, the sort of driving force behind the production of these narratives is through a recognition that they they arrive at a time when that last generation of Britons who were born in and lived and worked in colonial British India were now beginning to advance into old age. And inevitably that brought about another sense of that looking back and a desire to perhaps record their experiences or see their experiences recorded in culture and literature and and other forms. But also that the then the, the next generation, the adult generation of Britons at that time might also have composed their children and also people who would have some living memory of empire from their childhood. So again, that those nostalgic waves that we were talking about are, are sort of almost exponential. They sort of build up and, and sort of refract between these different connecting impulses for those kind of fictions. And yeah, they produce things like the Temple of Doom, which to watch now, you're, as you say, like you're com- immediately struck by how odd it all seems and, and how sort of crass it might seem to us in our, our sort of our modern moment. That didn't stop me, I think, as a, a kid really enjoying it. Yeah. And yeah. Now, now I just find enjoyment in a different way, in sort of pulling apart some of its um, more problematic, critical elements. Particularly looking at films like Indiana Jones or, or even other films or books, how much do you think that reflects on the mutiny, this idea of, of role reversal? So from servant to master to then suddenly the servant overpowering the master, etc.? Yeah, that's a, again, a recurrent central theme of Anglo-Indian fiction from the late 19th century through to the, the very end of empire in, in India and after. I mean, the books about the Indian rebellion continued to be popular, not just in the immediate aftermath of 1857. Again, the, the circumstances for that boom, that initial boom, were were just right because the the memoirs also served a, a news function as well as a literary one. So they were written for a British public, very hungry for, for news of what was going on. But they remained popular. So again, as the participants and the witnesses to that history grew older, they wrote their reflections later in life. They in turn inspired works of fiction that sort of spoke to this underlying fear continually that there might be another incident such as the Indian Rebellion of 1857, just around the corner. Again, that sort of that feeling of shock that so characterised um, those initial responses to it was always the the sort of bogeyman under under the bed in British India, inspiring novels and and other fictions throughout the early part of the 20th century. And then in the sort of post-colonial period, the Indian Rebellion becomes a very productive lens for for writers to either try to recapture that spirit of adventure, like you say, so um, writers like Norman Partington, for instance, or it becomes a vehicle for far more incisive critique 
such as in the work of J.G. Farrell and um, The Siege of Krishnapur, for instance. So this work has been occasionally kind of critically maligned. Farrell takes a very playful, postmodern and sort of deeply ironic approach to depicting colonial Britons. And I think that has occasionally been seen as a sort of implicit or, or tacit sort of affection or um, I wouldn't go as far as support, but you know it could be far more critical than perhaps it is given the mode of its transmission. However, on closer inspection, and certainly as I've argued in my work, Farrell is being sort of deeply critical of these Britons and the colonial archetypes that he, he draws because they're, they're all ridiculous. They're buffoons or they're inept or they have very good intentions, but the reality of those intentions, a bit like perhaps colonialism and imperialism itself, are deeply exploitative and they often end in violence for Indians or deprivation or other sort of equally unpleasant circumstances. There is um, There are a number of problems with the book um, in terms of the scope of its representation. And indeed, many, uh, many critics and many other authors have responded to this genre of writing and, and noted that it is, is not representative of Indian consciousness in a, a way that is satisfying or fulfilling. But to a certain extent that, well, it a, could never be so because these are British writers and that would be a sort of act of literary ventriloquism that wouldn't be representative but also it wasn't, uh, it wasn't really their intention. So their interest in that period is about reading the present through the past. And that present is very much couched in terms of what is happening to Britishness right now in the aftermath of empire. And how can we use the history of empire to understand that process of change? So if you think about it, then so much of our popular culture and our British identity, as you might call it, is tied into the Raj and, and imperialism from the 19th and 20th century. One of the biggest things I think that comes to mind that I, I know that you've worked on is our drinking culture. How much of our drinking culture following the post-imperialism was tied into the Raj and the idea of the sundowner? An awful lot of it. Um, so, I mean, in, in my research, the way I got into drinking cultures is uh, a bit of a, a sort of circuitous one. But it comes again from this um, period of, of decolonization or the, the sort of aftermath of decolonization and, and these writers. So, again, someone like Farrell, but also um, you can observe this tendency in, in some of his contemporaries like Scott and, and also Salman Rushdie, undertook a fairly extensive process of research before writing their novels. So Farrell in particular, if you ever get the opportunity to visit his archives at Trinity College Dublin, you can see how um, meticulous he was in organising his research by using uh, sort of flashcards and, and dividers on various subjects. And he used the archives of the British Library and he also used the, the Victoria and Albert Museum, for instance, because at the time they were they were still separate, their collections. And he, he basically often used period sources verbatim. And as part of this, the medical practice sources that he addressed or included in his novel had a great deal to do with alcohol. And it led me to examine and led me to start thinking about the role of alcohol in medical practice, but also how alcohol is one of these substances that as well as that kind of official and sort of sanctioned use 
for medicinal purposes, it obviously has a social function too. And it creates a bit of a paradox in that you have, on the one hand, this substance that is deeply embedded in regular consumption or preservation of good health. So Farrell is quoting sources um, that recommend the use of brandy in cholera treatments, for instance. And there are numbers of vademecums or colonial handbooks that recommend different kinds of beverages for, for different ailments or for the maintenance of general health. So drinking beer... Most famously, the gin and tonic. Most famously, the gin and tonic, of course, yeah, as a kind of <laughs> delivery mechanism for quinine. But also things like um, drinking stout and porter if people are run down because it was thought to be um, sort of fortifying and strengthening as a beverage, but also just drinking beer or effervescent drinks for an aid to digestion. Of course, that's where the IPA came from, isn't it? The Indian deer pair. Yeah, which is a, another kind of narrative that is existing along alongside those cultures of publication I spoke about. So the, there's a, a legend to IPA, as, uh, as the beer writer Pete Brown puts it, about how it um, was very much a kind of accidental discovery. And the, the story goes that as British India developed in terms of its own culture and as it grew, more and more people from Britain were traveling to, to India and sort of putting down roots and staying and settling and, and looking for those kind of tastes of home and those reminders of, of life in Britain. So this industry of export grew up in a very kind of ad hoc way around the East India Company at the time. So they're obviously based in London and their ships would transport various commodities out to, to India for the colonists. And just down the road in Bow was the, uh, the pub called the Bombay Grab, where George Hodson supposedly brewed this sort of heavily, heavily hopped high alcohol beer. And then only in shipping it out to, to India and letting it sort of essentially cast condition over the journey, which could take a number of months in those days before the Suez Canal, they sort of accidentally opened it up at the other end and it tasted even better than when it went in. <laughs> so it's this, you know, it's a lovely story that Brown and other researchers basically say is not true and is just a very nice trick of early 19th century marketing. But it, it has remained a very enduring story because it, I think, speaks to some ideals of Britishness and British character that there's still very much a desire to preserve. So that sort of sense of the sort of accidental genius corresponds very nicely with ideas of the accidental empire, for instance. So this, this suggestion that the British empire was not like other European empires in that it was deliberate and planned and systematic. In fact, it was, you know, an, an accidental flowering of Pax Britannica and a lot of things that just sort of came, came their way either through the doctrine of lapse or just opportunities that were occasionally picked up. So yeah, I think that kind of, that great cult of the British amateur is very much emphasised by the, the legend of IPA and it's something that we see still valued in contemporary society. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you think that imperial drinking culture differed largely from domestic drinking culture? Or did it influence domestic drinking culture? Did that then continue into the later part of the 20th and 21st centuries? Yes, they, they are obviously connected, of course, but they are quite different. It's, it's occasionally very difficult to say with any great certainty quite how much people are drinking on a regular basis. So the, the kind of sources that we have for this, or certainly the sources that I've found in in my research, quite varied. They can occasionally be the printed sources with um, some recommendations for for regular intake from medical professionals and others. They can occasionally be um, military sources. So they might be records of courts martial, or they might be military proceedings against soldiers who are seen to have, um, you know, misbehaved in in some way. Or they might be medical reports from from surgeons and the Indian Medical Service. So from these and also from other sources, you might be able to sort of build up a picture of quite how much people are drinking. But one one thing I can say with, with some certainty is that there is a perception that drinking is gradually decreasing over the course of the, the 19th century. And this is where that idea of the, the difference between drinking in, in Britain and drinking in colonial India comes into play. And one of the, the biggest fears around drinking culture in colonial India is the, the idea of sort of less majesty in front of Indians. So the, the notion that drinking is still very important, although the, the kind of medical culture from the middle of the century changes across the sort of 50 years to the end of the century, as you would well expect with the kind of continuing professionalization and, and growth in ideas of bacteriology, of course, undermining many of the, the more traditional cholera treatments. But that perception that if Britons are drinking too much, they might embarrass themselves and that might sort of undermine the ideals of the empire, the so-called civilizing mission of British imperialism. That was to sort of bring order and harmony and, and good values that were hoped to be sort of replicated in its various territories. So yeah, there's a certain, there's definitely that sort of air of concern, which lasts well into the 20th century. And you have um, people like Kitchener, who is the chief of the, the army in India in the early 20th century, writing memoranda to his, his troops and issuing them to um, Indian army troops trying to get them to guard against what he saw as the beginnings of a very slippery slope of partly sort of Victorian morality tale that begins with drinking and ends in sort of gambling and venereal disease and dishonor, with sort of dishonor being the, the very worst of these, and that the, the personal responsibility 
of the individual Briton in colonial space is to maintain that sense of honour and thereby uphold the empire. And that is, that is the kind of chief difference, I think, between those two contexts of drinking. As the century progresses, as the 20th century progresses, one of the, the biggest changes in drinking habits comes as a result of the First World War. And there's some very interesting material in the British Library India Office archives where the military begin to comment on the fashion for drinking short drinks after the First World War. So gin remains, gin is, is occasionally you know, subject to peaks and, and troughs in its popularity around availability and also um, marketing and perception. But it remains pretty constant because it's quite cheap and it's, it's generally widely available. But there's a particular tendency towards drinking whiskey after the, the First World War that the military felt it necessary to, to weigh in on. Again, because of the possibility of disorder, social disorder, and many historians have written about the kind of violence that arises from drinking cultures in colonial space, and that violence is usually directed at, at Indians, but also because of uh, manpower and the idea of wastage. So there's a sense running throughout the 19th century into the 20th that the British authorities in India are always understaffed and will do a lot of explaining away or put a lot of effort into rehabilitating people who have issues with alcohol and alcoholism as a means of retaining them in India. So this is still a concern after the First World War, and there are a sort of number of strategies proposed to try to alter the drinking culture in existence around that sort of very sort of masculine and performative context of the military. And then if we're thinking about how that legacy, and again, sort of talking back to something like IPA, how that legacy lingers. Where I followed this through in my research, I've kind of harmonized these two ideas of um, looking at the, the 19th century medical practice and looking at those 20th century nostalgic novels through the way the resurgence of empire appears within drinking cultures of the craft beer boom. So craft beer in its, I'm not going to try and define what it is because that's pretty heavily contested by, by pretty much everyone, um, but in its modern guys, it develops out of the American West Coast in, in the 1990s and gradually kind of made its way across to, to Britain. And the biggest part of that, or the, the central plank of that resurgence and that revival is IPA. And so you get a very interesting sense of dual colonial return going on. So firstly, the context of America, which is a former British colony, of course, reviving this most imperial style of beers and then sort of packaging it up and, and almost like selling it back to the empire in sort of post-colonial, decolonial Britain, who then sort of pick it up and reinterpret it through that prism of Britishness and nostalgia that has so coloured and affected British culture of the last 40 years. And so much of that is also, and I suppose the, the drinking culture is, as well, is tied up in things like our sporting culture today. And I was wondering if that concepts also emerged from the from the Raj. I mean I know there's the there's things like the the shikar, which is the hunting of large animals, and then obviously the popularizing of cricket. Do you think that our interaction with sports came or was enhanced by imperialism or do you think that it pre-existed? I, I can certainly see places where these things enhance each other. So they become part of a, a larger process of ritualization around behaviours in the Raj, particularly to do with, with leisure. And 
yeah, as you say, like the, the shikar is a kind of celebrated colonial pastime and it would usually be followed by some sort of lavish dinner and celebration, which would bring with it a lot of drinking. And the same is true in, in many of the memoirs I've, I've read um, in the British Library collections that date from you know, the 19th century through to the very end of empire, with some of the, the later ones being written in, in the 1970s, looking back at the 1940s. That ritual remains. So if you are going to partake of, of any kind of sport, that would near invariably be followed by dinner and drinks at the club. And it's all part... Mm, of course, the rise of the club. Exactly. Yeah. So it's a, a way of it's a way of creating those or sustaining, developing those same homosocial bonds that exist through sport and just take them into the, the saloon bar of the, the club or the dining room of the club and continue them over a whiskey and soda or a gin and tonic or, or so on and so on. And then... I mean, again, that we can see perhaps a difference between those sort of colonial behaviours, which all sound quite genteel, perhaps in comparison to sort of drinking cultures around around sport in Britain. Yeah, but also that that sort of those conversations that happened in the club, and you know, they would there were conversations about sport, etc. But I know certainly having read some of Kipling's work outside of his his literature, he comments on the discourse around people who you know people who are serving at the clubs also the sort of wars or rebellions that were going on and the sort of at the attitudes towards local people those sorts of conversations were also happening around this in genteel like seemingly genteel environment yeah it's a double-edged sword it's a it's a really exclusive space in in many many ways because exactly as you say, like you would, you would have to be a member or the guest of a member, and not universally, but often there was a form of colour bar, either sort of openly enforced or, or again, kind of implicitly enforced. So the space itself is is quite exclusive in that sense. But the very act of drinking also then becomes involved in that exclusion. So if, for instance, your religion or just your personal tastes and habits mean that you are a non-drinker, then presumably it would be quite difficult to engage, as you say, in those kind of significant conversations around sort of shaping attitudes and policy and, and making decisions amongst the sort of the, the great and good of colonial society in that environment if you're not partaking in, in the drink and the, the sort of conversation that flows from it. I mean, it's not that, that that didn't happen, but certainly sort of alcohol can be thought of as as kind of greasing the wheels of of imperial governance as much as it does the economy or or leisure time as well. Do you think in some ways that Raj nostalgia or imperial nostalgia has overshadowed discourse around decolonisation in popular culture? Or do you think that that was something that was more of the late 20th century? Do you think we're now moving towards that or have moved towards more of a loud discourse around decolonisation? Hmm. I think that nostalgia has certainly obscured and perhaps obstructed some of the more difficult conversations that are now being had. I mean, it is probably quite quite logical to assume that every culture would want to think better of themselves, so will sort of gravitate towards those productions that paint them in the best light, and perhaps they, they do then sort of become a barrier to more searching critique. And that's not to say that those more overt critiques weren't happening, of course. 
they were also being snuck into these cultures of publication under the guise of of nostalgia. So something I'm, I'm thinking of in particular is GM Fraser's Flashman series, mm, yes, for instance, yeah. from the from the 1960s, who you know, which describes this absolutely morally reprehensible character who is, you know, as he I think self describes a, a, a toady, a sneak, and a coward. But who goes on to sort of win the Victoria Cross and becomes sort of Knight of the Garter and is invited to tea at Balmoral and is is at the very heart of the the imperial establishment. I think Fraser knew exactly what he was doing with that character, and he's he's making it's a bit of a kind of Trojan horse in that he creates a character who is deeply unpleasant um, and makes him synonymous with all the values of the British Empire and all the kind of trappings and um, he's a bit of a pig really isn't he that's effectively what he is he's awful yeah yeah Um, and I I think what happens in the course of that series is that he becomes Fraser softens him a little I mean the first the first novel is particularly overt in this kind of critical framing of that character but those novels have been again a bit like Farrell erroneously seen as celebratory so I think, again, there's, you know, a sense to which that, that, that nostalgia wins out there and it smooths over the, the perhaps more critical texts that, that are appearing. And, yeah, perhaps it is now a, another generation or two further down the line where sort of most adult Britons, for instance, won't have any memories of empire from their own childhood or if they have sort of family members who were involved in, in the empire in some way, they might now be more distant, that perhaps that opens up the space for more critical conversations to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That was fascinating. And where can people read more about this and read more about you? I'm delighted to contribute. And if people do want to read more, then I have a, uh, a blog, which is called Imperial Measures Blog dot wordpress.com which is excellent i've been reading it <laughs> thank you very much which <laughs> detailed the kind of things that i was finding and reflecting on during a a couple of welcome trust funded projects that i've i've done on this subject so that exists and yeah if people would like to read it then that would be great great well thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.